got to preface this by saying I've had some nasty things going on with my computer. You know, the blue screen. And, oh, yeah, not once, but about five times this past week. So there's something wrong. Right, duh, rocket science. But I'm sitting there this morning, and I'm going through my sermon for the last time, as I always do. And all of a sudden, there is music. And it's like, like, not, you know, crazy rock music, no lyrics or anything, just this soft kind of ethereal church music, right? And I, I mean, I'm going. And I'm looking at my computer, and I'm looking at what I've got open, and so I click on just to make sure, and I'm on Facebook, because that's always up. <laughs> yeah. I'm watching out. And then there was one other window that had nothing to do with, that there was nothing that I, you know, could have inadvertently, not, I, I don't know. And I'm sitting there going, this is really crazy. And then a voice starts behind the music, okay? And I didn't pay attention to all of it because I'm still trying to figure out where, I wasn't even sure it was coming out of my computer. And the voice says, if you open your eyes, you'll see what no one else sees. And now I'm going, what the heck? <laughs> Honest to goodness. And then the music went away. And I'm going, okay, Lord, if that's you, let me know what this even means. Okay, I don't live in this world, right? I don't, you know, yeah. So, okay, I gotta, I'm got. i focusing on my sermon. I ignore it. About 20 minutes go by. <laughs> and now, no music, just a voice. And it was something about nuggets meaning chicken McNuggets or something in the shape of duckies or something. And I went, okay, okay, it's not you, Lord, it's my computer. But anyway, I just had to share that with you. There you go. Unless there's something I'm supposed to figure out about ducky-shaped chicken McNuggets or some such thing, I don't know. Pastor Brent, I think my computer needs replacing. <laughs> anyway, hi, we're in the Gospel of Mark. That has nothing to do with anything. Uh, but it unnerved me a bit. We are going to cover, I hope, today, verses 29 through 45. Now, I don't know about you, but I've wondered how I might, this is going to sound stupid, and it is, how I might have done things differently with respect to the timing, especially, of the incarnation of Jesus. And if at this very moment you're thinking, what you might have done differently. I want to say to you, that is a good and proper response. Okay? Just so, just for the record. So let me, let me just kind of come at this from a little different angle of approach. I assume that you all have been frustrated time and again, perhaps many times over your pilgrimage as a follower of Jesus, because you took that risk and you stepped out on faith and you prayed boldly, and whatever you were praying for not only didn't happen, but it got worse. Or maybe I'm all alone in this. And then the frustration is magnified when the situation happens to involve someone that you have been trying to make inroads into their lives, trying to get them to be even be willing to, you know, sort of how you earn, a, uh, you earn the right to have a hearing with them about who this Jesus is. And 
Things are, you know, there's eh, still a little, but you're going to stick your neck out again. And with knocking knees, you ask this person if you could pray for them. And reluctantly they say yes, more because they didn't know how to say no. And feeling trapped, they say, well, yeah, I, I guess so. And so now it's all on the line. And you realize that. And you've got all the pressure on yourselves that we put on ourselves in those situations. And you're having a hard time even concentrating well enough to barely get out an intelligible prayer for the impossible. But you get through it. And you say amen. And then there's that awkward goodbye with the person. And so then for the next few days, you're praying like mad for that person and for whatever it was that you prayed for them about, knowing that it would, only ta- it would take only God because it's an impossible situation. And you're hoping among hope that God comes through in this impossible situation. Because if he does, it's going to break down all those barriers. And boom, you're going to have this person's attention and the doors are going to be wide open and they're going to give you that hearing about who this Jesus really is. About a week later, you run into that person who before you can get a greeting out, says to you, that was some kind of a prayer. Only it was total sarcasm. And they tersely tell you how the situation (laughs) had degraded after you had prayed. And they ask you not to do them any more favors. Hmm. Wherever you are on your walk with Jesus, let me encourage you. If you haven't experienced this yet, you will. (laughs) Encouraged? And if you have experienced this, get used to it. There. Okay. Let's say a prayer and go home. (laughs) Try, though, try not to get discouraged. Hear the word of the Lord from the prophet Isaiah. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it out. I generally crab about snow and rain because I tend to always see them as just basically crimping my plans and my desires for the day or the week or the month or or maybe in the wintertime, the months. But even I realize how important the seasonal rains and snows are to so many critical aspects of our very sustenance. Before Katie, my daughter Katie and her husband David moved to Nicaragua just a few weeks ago, they lived in Los Angeles since they were married, I think, around the year 2000. (laughs) That was so reaffirming. Barb goes, which is great. That's awesome. Thank you. 
Well, they have been living in L.A. under drought conditions just about as far as I can remember since they've been there. And if you hear the news lately, it's only become worse and worse. So I truly see the good that the rains and the snows bring, even when I don't wish to see them. And the Lord says his word is like that, though. We may not see what the Lord is doing, and we often don't, but he reminds us that whether we do see it or not, his word never goes forth only to return with nothing having been accomplished, even though that may be the way it seems to us. So when we hear back from the friend or the coworker about the dismal turn of events that we prayed for and we even perceive their anger at us for getting their hopes up and it seems like that door has been shut, we have to remember that God has his ways of doing things. And even in my pride and arrogance, I don't think that I know better than God. But that doesn't keep me from disillusionment. That doesn't keep me from discouragement and even anger that God doesn't do more things the way I would do them. So here we are, we're reading the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus has just come on the public scene. And with Mark's intentional, thinking back now to the last few weeks, Mark's condensation of time, it seems that Jesus can't stay put in any one place for any length of time. But the vignette that we read about last week with Jesus in the synagogue is more like the way I like to see things happening. It's more like the way I would see Jesus' public ministry being inaugurated. And you might remember that Jesus was teaching in such a totally different manner, meaning we learned last week that he was teaching with with a unique authority, that the crowds were absolutely dazzled to the point of nearly being undone. And to put frosting on that event, Mark tells us that demons, now listen to this carefully, demons in a worshiper in the congregation of the worshiping, cry out, giving Jesus all the publicity that he could want. Jesus tells them, though, to shut up. And with a long spell-busting ritual, Jesus casts them out of the worshiper on command. What's the net result? The word spreads that there is one extraordinary man in town. And with the help of the testimony of demons, the people know Jesus is not just a special man. With the help of the demons, he's not just a special man. But he is the undeniable son of God who could only be the long-awaited Messiah, Savior of mankind. Verses 19 32. And immediately after, the, uh, after everyone came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. And immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and he raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her. And she waited on them. And when evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to Jesus all who were ill 
and those who were demonized, not demon-possessed. So two things stuck with the community as the fame of this special man goes forth. What had happened, at least to date, according to Mark, is that one, Jesus cast out demons, and two, Jesus now has healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And as the crowds continue to hear more and more about this Jesus, they are getting more and more excited. And so once the ceremonial restrictions of the Sabbath observance is over, that is the significance of verse 32. Verse 33 tells us the whole city had gathered at the door. Why? Because Jesus cast out some demons and Jesus healed a woman on death's door. They flocked to where Jesus is. Because why? Because they wanted to get rid of their demons. And they wanted to be healed of their illnesses and their pains and their sufferings and their sorrows and their despairs. And what did Jesus do? Verse 34. He healed many who were ill with various diseases and he cast out many demons. This is the picture of the Jesus that anyone can love. This is a God anyone would worship. Jesus coming and loving and doing what he does. Oh, but there's a fly in the ointment. The people rushed to his location seeking out the healer and the exorcist. And in compassion, he healed and he cast out demons. But Mark wants us to know that Jesus ordered the demons to silence. What was the demons' contribution to the mystery of who this man was? Back to verse 24. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? You have come to destroy us, the demons crying out. Haven't you? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. The demon reveals, one, the earthly origins of this man. Two, the guaranteed expected eschatological conclusion to human history. Three, victory over Satan's realm and authority. And the peace de resistance, they reveal that the one before them is none other than the long-awaited Messiah, Savior, promised from as far back as the Garden of Eden. Who would ever have fathomed that in a scant few words, the most comprehensive and powerful evangelistic message for the ages would be delivered by one of Satan's like a great thing to me. When your enemy announces your superiority over them, that's something that you want to shoot out over the airwaves, the radios, uh, radio waves, and the social networking, and everything else that's available at the time. And yet, in verse 34, the rest of it, Mark wants us to know, but Jesus was not permitting the demons to speak. 
exactly because they knew who he was. What I am about to say is not necessarily inspired, just my thoughts. But they could be inspired. The demons knew exactly who Jesus was and why he was there. But his demonstrations of unquestioned authority, whether it be through miracles or for beating up demons, were only fomenting more excitement about the one who could command anything and everything and everyone. And with that kind of authority, Jesus could bring about anything and everything that anyone wanted. The problem with this is that this Messiah was the stumbling block that kept God's people from receiving the very one they were waiting for. Hang on. The prophetic proclamations through the ages and the descriptions that they had read and and were brought up with were about the coming king in the Psalms. And it had them waiting for a savior, Messiah, who would come to earth and destroy Israel's enemies. And God would restore Israel as the rightful rulers of the world. This is the God. This is the Messiah that they craved. And they were flocking to him, but not as the one to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess is Lord God Almighty, but rather as the one who could make their lives easier, happier, more prosperous, more comfortable, and more just. Mm. About 3,000 years ago, pretty wise guy, not a wise guy, a wise guy named Solomon wrote, that which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done, so that there is nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1.9. Oh, yes. This is the kind of Messiah they were longing for. This is the very Messiah of the type of what they were waiting for. Look what he could do for them. This should start having a familiar ring to it. Because this is the thesis of what today we call, get ready for it, the prosperity gospel. In theology, it is called triumphalism. Triumphalism confuses the now with the not yet. It infuses what Jesus came to do on his first visit with what Jesus will come back to do on his next visit. Jesus did not come to reverse the effects of sin in the world. He came to reverse the death grip of sin in and on the human heart. This is why he came to make 
fishers of men and not skilled fighting warriors. His second visit will be to reverse the effects of sin in the world. How important is that difference today? You ever heard of the problem of evil? That's what it's called, the problem of evil. Don't think about the problem of evil, but it's just called the problem of evil. In philosophy, in theology, and everything else, it's called the problem of evil. And there are two basic forms. One is usually in form of a question, and the other one is in the form of a statement. The first one is, we've all heard this, if there is a God, then why? And now you can fill in the blank, and it's always with the, then why? You know, is there a 7.8 earthquake in Nepal where now, what, over 5,000 people are dead? And still more to come. Why is there a tsunami that kills 100,000 plus people? Why is ISIS allowed to continue their rampage and kill 300 more people this past week and cut the heads off of Christians who will not renounce Christ? If there is a God, why do little babies die? Why is there disease? Why? And it just goes on and on. It's called the problem of evil. The second form is a statement. Well, I can't believe in a God who would allow fill in the blank again. For the masses, both the atheist and what I'll call the pseudo-Christian masses, it seems the only expectation and requirement of their God is to prevent every unpleasant and harmful thing in our short life on earth. That's my view of God. God does that. That's what he should do. That's God I'll worship. There is little thought about eternity or heaven because we've all basically, the culture of the world has become universalistic, meaning when you die, you either go out of existence or everyone goes to a place in paradise. There's very little thought about hell And there's virtually no thought for the honor of God or that we might exist for him and not the other way around. It is only ever about making my life here and now better. That is a God that I can worship. And of course, God knows this. Jesus realizes this. And Jesus is not interested in the accolades of the crowds or being popular with the masses. And so, verse 35 to 37, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, and he went to a lonely place, and he was praying there. And Simon and his companions searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus said, not in the revised version, but in the reversed vision, well then, we better get crack-a-lackin'. We don't want to disappoint now, do we? Why does Mark tell us this? 
why does he tell us that Jesus was in a geographical locale, translated a lonely place in the NAS. It's the Aramos, which is used in numerous places in the New Testament, which is more commonly translated a desert, meaning it is a place of desolation. It is a place that's wild. It is a place that nobody would choose to go to. It was not an inviting place, which is why it was a lonely place. And furthermore, Jesus went there under cover of darkness. Now, rocket scientist disciples, why might you suppose that he was out there? Because he didn't want to be found. Oh. But wait a minute. Mark is all about the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. He's the one that said, let's go to Capernaum, to the big city. But everyone is looking for you, Jesus. Why? One, because he was casting out demons. And two, because he was healing people. He was working miracles on his own authority. And what would a self-absorbed, sinful, sin-filled world say to Jesus along with his disciples as well? Jesus, you have the power to heal people. You have the power to cast out demons. You have the, the, the miraculous power to bring something out of nothing. You can whip, whip up physical and emotional comfort like no one. And yet here you are out in the middle of nowhere hiding. Where's your compassion? I can't believe in such a God. God would be seeing people from morning through the night meeting all their needs. That's the God that I can worship. He would be with people constantly giving them everything that they wanted, all their desires. And I'm beginning to wonder, Jesus, if you really are from God. Now, if you think that what I've just said for the last several minutes is far-fetched, consider what happened after what is traditionally called Jesus' triumphal ride into Jerusalem. Which on the timeline of history was one week before his execution at Calvary. He had worked miracle after miracle after miracle He'd healed the sick. He'd raised the dead. He unstopped deaf ears. And yet only days after shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. <laughs> the same multitudes were shouting, Crucify him! changed. You see, immediately preceding the triumphal entry 
and not by coincidence, remember, juxtapositioning of texts and scriptures to other scriptures that follow them or precede them. Right before the triumphal entry, we have Jesus miraculously feeding the thousands upon thousands. And now he's entering Jerusalem at the beginning of what will be his earthly end, which meant submitting himself to the corrupt powers of earthly governments. And had the people had their way, had the people gotten the Messiah God that they wanted, Jesus would have come and would have destroyed the corrupt Jewish leadership, and he would have annihilated the Roman legion. And he would have never gone to the cross. But Jesus didn't come to feed the multitudes. He didn't come to eliminate poverty. He didn't come to cure all illnesses or to even punish injustice. He came to seek and to save those who were lost, who were going to die in a Christless eternity. Come, Jesus says, and I will make you fishers of men. And to accomplish that, He had to allow the wickedness and the corruption of the world to carry on. Paul writes to the Corinthians, "Just The just one had to be treated as the unjust one by the gods of earth, so that the unjust ones would be treated as the just ones by the God of heaven. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But Jesus, Jesus, what are you doing out here? Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replies, verse 38, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby. Why? So that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. (laughs) And we read, Jesus went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching, casting out demons, And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Now here we go. And Jesus sternly, not just Jesus warned him, but Jesus sternly warned him and then immediately sent him away. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. But do go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them, to the priestly class. the guy do 
He went out and he began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around. And what was the result? To such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city. But stayed out in unpopulated areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. unintended consequences of the miraculous. You see, even the miracles of the Savior were an impediment to his real reason for coming, which was for proclamation that while the world was born in sin and condemned to die an eternal death, The sinless one had come to remove from them the penalty of sin by giving to all who would believe his very own righteousness. We seem to think that if we could walk into Maine General, And we could go in there in the power of Jesus and hop from room to room with a divine gift of healing that the multitudes then would come to Christ. But God knows better. Because, after all, God is sovereign. And God knows all who will come and all who won't whether they ever see, hear of, or experience a miracle or not. And so you see the pressure that we put on ourselves in those situations. This woman has cancer. Lord, she's bitter. She doesn't like you. She doesn't know you. She's going to die in the next few months, according to the doctors. And she's going to go to hell. Lord, if you touch her and heal her, this one will be saved. And the word says, you desire that no one will perish. God, in Jesus' name, I pray, heal this cancer. Drive it out of this woman. And the woman dies with cancer three months later. And we walk away disillusioned, discouraged, disappointed, and confounded. Lord, if only you had been here. (laughs) What does that sound like? Remember Mary and Martha? Yeah. Lord, if only you'd been here. Our brother Lazarus wouldn't be rotting in a grave. We have to help people understand why Jesus came. It is far too easy to make him the celestial Santa Claus who will come and heal your marriage, who will come and heal your children, who will come and heal your broken hearts, your despairs, the injustices that have been perpetrated against you over and over again. don't want to forget that Jesus saw and was in the presence of people 
who needed healing, and he healed them. And who were demonized, and he cast out the demons. I'm not saying Jesus doesn't do that, won't do that, we shouldn't pray for that. Yes, all of those things. But he came to deal with the issue that whatever is going on in your life today, if you die tomorrow without Jesus, there is no second chance. And you will spend eternity in a place that is obscenely uncomfortable, to put it mildly. This is the Jesus, and we're reading it from God's Word. He didn't stroll from town to town and put up a big banner. Healing crusade coming next week. Come to the tent. Quite the contrary. He said, okay, people are getting too wrapped up around the miraculous. Let's get out of this place and try another one so that I can preach the good news of who I am and what that means to you. It's not a difficult concept. It has been warped and perverted and overemphasized or underemphasized throughout Christendom. <laughs> Do you know this, Jesus? Let me have you stand. Father in heaven. know that there is a day coming and you will again you will again revisit this planet and it will be such a different day a different time and your coming will be for such a different purpose Lord we live in the light of your first coming and in a way in the shadows of your second coming so, dear God, while we are in the light, help us to remember exactly what that light is. That you came to die in our stead. You were sinless, so sin could not hold you. Death could not keep you down. And so you rose again. And you have given us that perfection that was yours so that we may be with you in eternity. Dear God, help us to stay straight on the priorities of what your message is for your namesake, for your glory.